Earlier this year, tens of thousands of people marched in cities and towns across Australia. They were demanding the same basic rights women have been demanding for decades. Equality, respect and the right to be protected from male harassment, abuse and rape. broken. The glass ceiling is still in place and there are significant failings in the power structures within our institutions. We are here because it's unfathomable that we are still having to fight this same stale, tired fight. I'm here today to make sure that of Aboriginal women is uh, elevated in uh, gendered violence. So I want to tell our story. Thrives in silence. Behaviour unspoken, behaviour ignored, is behaviour endorsed. We just want to be listened to and and believed. The March for Justice movement was ignited by allegations of sexual assault from within Parliament House and a rape allegation made against Australia's highest law officer, the Attorney-General Christian Porter, allegations he has strenuously denied. The rage at these marches was directed very much at the government, but also at the culture of male entitlement that persists throughout our society. The rage was directed at patriarchy. In this series, we've seen how the malignant culture of power over drives domestic abuse and coercive control, and how our institutions too often not only fail to stop it, but end up perpetuating it. In this episode, we pull the lens back to see how this is all connected. It's considered a truism now that gender inequality is the root cause of domestic abuse, family violence and sexual assault. These kinds of abuses are being perpetrated against women at epidemic proportions, but they are also perpetrated against men and non-binary people who are LGBTQI, who are disabled, and the scope of intimate partner abuse is much broader than the binary of men over women. To confront the common element driving all of this, It's not enough to simply focus on reducing gender inequality. We need to define and confront the entire system that entraps all of us. I'm Jess Hill, and this is The Trap. I mean, I've been, you know, thinking a whole lot, you know, that the dynamic within intimate personal relationships of power and control and clever manipulative techniques and tactics that are used to reinforce that position of domination and control. That kind of dynamic, in my mind, translates into other institutions such as our parliamentary political culture. This is Mary Crooks, head of the Victorian Women's Trust. We've been working together for the past 18 months on this series, which was a brainchild of the Trust. 
Mary has had an extensive career in public policy and has been researching and advocating for gender equality and a more inclusive, fair and safe society for decades. And I think the danger is that we see that as some kind of objective reality in the institutions in our society that have been and still remain male-dominated. As we worked on this podcast, I'd occasionally visit Mary and the team at the Trust's headquarters in Melbourne. Huddled around a boardroom table, we'd talk for hours, making the connections between abuse in the home and the power and control dynamics that play out across our society, particularly in our parliament. The politicians will say to you, but this is the way politics is done. And I'm saying, no, this is the way the politics of control are done. In looking for examples of this politics of control, it's got to be said, we've really been spoiled for choice lately. But as a pure illustration of this, Mary and I can't go past what Prime Minister Scott Morrison did to former Liberal MP Julia Banks. Followers of Australian politics will probably remember that in 2018, Julia Banks decided to quit the Liberal Party and serve out her term as an independent. She did this after a leadership coup in which her party dumped the sitting Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and replaced him with Scott Morrison. In a blistering speech to Parliament, she explained her extraordinary decision. Led by members of the reactionary right wing, the coup was aided by many MPs trading their vote for a leadership change in exchange for their individual promotion, pre-selection endorsements or silence. Their actions were undeniably for themselves for their position in the party, their power, their personal ambition, not for the Australian people who we represent. But it wasn't just the leadership change that led to her disowning her own party. It was what that process had laid bare for her about the politics of male domination and control in the Australian parliament. Across both major parties, the level of regard and respect for women in politics is years behind the business world. Often, when good women call out or are subjected to bad behaviour, the reprisals, backlash and commentary portrays them as the bad ones. The liar, the troublemaker, the emotionally unstable or weak, or someone who should be silenced. As we'd later discover, those words weren't just about parliamentary culture. Julia Banks was actually describing what she had been subjected to by the Prime Minister. When she decided to quit the party... She had first gone in private to tell the Prime Minister. He asked her if she would just give him 24 hours before she made it public. And unquestioningly, she assented to that request, didn't see anything wrong with agreeing to that. What she hadn't realised is that he wanted that time. It was a tactic And that was my first mistake because I'm told afterwards that they, the PMO's office, the Prime Minister's office, for which obviously Morrison is accountable, were backgrounding the press and others, certainly within the party, that I had had a complete sort of emotional breakdown that I was, had not coped with the coup and don't go near her. and, And that was the way they were being backgrounded. This is Julia Banks on the ABC's current affairs program, 7.30. She says that within 21 hours, the story of her resignation had been leaked. So Julia released a statement. 
And then Morrison rang me and he said, you know, you, you agreed on 24 hours, so he's a bit cross about that. And I said the story was leaking. And then he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll come to your electorate and uh, we'll do a press conference together. And I said, no, 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 Scott, I'm taking a few days leave. And he said, well, do me a favour, do not speak to the media, don't do any interviews. And I agreed to that and that was my second mistake. Julia didn't know then that the Prime Minister's office was already backgrounding against her. And then his first press conference, he was asked, you know, how do you feel about Julia Banks uh, not recontesting? And I remember watching the television and thinking, what's he saying? What am I doing right now? I'm supporting Julia and I'm reaching out to Julia and giving her every comfort and support for what has been a pretty torrid ordeal for her. This whole narrative, which is what he's very good at, controlling the narrative, and this whole narrative about me being this weak petal that hadn't coped with coup week, and that's the reason I was leaving, was the narrative that they had created and that he was complicit, absolutely complicit in when he did that first presser. What was the crucial decision that you made in 2018 about why you were leaving the parliament? I left because of that three months of treatment where I realised Morrison, the most powerful man in the country, I describe him as like a menacing, controlling wallpaper. He was either doing it through his emissaries or directly. He wanted me silenced. He wanted me to be quiet. You know, I'm challenging him and that was his response. I listened to that and I thought it was quite chilling in a way because I thought, I, I get it now. That to me is a practised, subliminal, practised reflex on the part of a dominant power bloke of being able to find a quick, in the moment rationale for buying time and then using it to defeat in this instance, this female opponent, and to restore the so-called natural order, that sense of I'm entitled to hold the power in this relationship and how dare you upset the apple cart and I will put it right by, in my terms. Yeah, and I think that Morrison is a real evolution on from Abbott in, in that way, in the sense that Abbott was much more overt with his old-fashioned and some would say misogynist views of women. Morrison is much more harder to pin. It's all of these moments that we see where we go, hang on, did he just really do that? I think another example of that that was really chilling was the day that he held a press conference saying essentially, you know, he was so, it was so terrible what had happened in Parliament around the Brittany Higgins allegations. He was so horrified by it. It was his real sort of, I have understood, I've heard women, I understand what you, how you want me to respond and I'm getting it. These events have triggered right across this building and indeed right across the country. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives, as their mothers did, as their grandmothers did. I have the deepest of vested interests. Criticise me, if you like, for speaking about my daughters, but they are the centre of my life. My wife is the centre of my life. My mother 
My widowed mother is the centre of my life. They motivate me every day on this issue. They have motivated me my entire life. It was all tears and quivering lips until the question started. If you were the boss, if you were the boss of the business and there'd been an alleged rape on your watch and this incident we heard about last night on your watch, your job would probably be in a bit of jeopardy, wouldn't it? Doesn't it look like you've lost control of your ministerial staff here? Well, I'll let you editorialise as you like, Andrew. But if anyone in this room wants to offer up the standards in their own workplaces by comparison, I'd invite you to do so. Well, they're better than these, I would suggest. Well, well, let, 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 let me take you up on that. Let me take you up on that. Right now, you'd be aware in your own organisation that there is a person who has had a complaint made against them for harassment of a woman in a women's toilet. And that matter is being pursued by your own HR department. So here we have a Prime Minister who has just tearfully apologised for mishandling a rape allegation in his own parliament. And minutes later, he is making a veiled attack on Samantha Maiden, the very reporter who broke that story, a journalist who was sitting right in front of him. He must have believed this allegation had been made against her. Now, it's bad enough to use this in a public press conference after you've just apologised for your treatment of women. But what's worse is, it wasn't even true. There was no allegation against Maiden. So he just lobbed out this unsubstantiated story. He basically used an allegation that had not even been um, made in the way that he represented against a News Limited staffer that we later found out to be Samantha Maiden, who was, of course, the, the key reporter behind those allegations, to try to sully her reputation and to send out a warning to the press that if you want to report on this, well, I'll, we'll dig up the dirt on you. You know, if you think you're coming from a squeaky clean background, well, we'll test that. And anyone who has any dirt should really think twice about trying to investigate this. So let's not, all of us who sit in glass houses here, start getting into that. You're free to make your criticisms and to stand on that pedestal, but be careful. And I just thought that whole scene was so disturbing. Publicly in this press conference, it seems like it's a real sort of, you know, road to Damascus moment, but actually reverting immediately to type in a way that is very subtle and very underhanded. Unless we're prepared to understand the dynamics by which that masculine power is institutionalised and played out on the everyday basis, we end up reforming on the periphery. You know, we're much more in the grip of this patriarchal male-dominated politics and we have to be prepared to analyse it and dig much deeper than perhaps we have as feminists. You know, we can throw around terms like, you know, our our patriarchal world, and that's patriarchy, or a boys' club. And one of the reasons we end up being a bit stymied 
in understanding exactly what that means is because it's actually hard work to get behind those terms and say, well, what does that mean? What, what is a patriarchal world? When I first started reporting on domestic abuse back in 2014, patriarchy was still a dirty word, kind of a red flag for man-hating feminist. But now, since Trump and Me Too, patriarchy is for everyone. Here's the federal opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, in February this year. The patriarchy, which continues to exist, is about the power imbalance that's there between men and women in our society. And the UN Secretary-General. For decades, women have been calling for the equality that is their right. And today they are shaking the pillars of patriarchy. Around the world, women and girls are calling out the abusive behaviour and discriminatory attitudes that face everywhere and all the time. They are insisting on lasting change. That is what women and girls want, and that is what I want. And it is what every sensible man and boy should want. But let's have a look at a tweet from the United Nations. The COVID-19 pandemic is demonstrating what we all know. Millennia of patriarchy have resulted in a male-dominated world with a male-dominated culture, which damages everyone, women, men, girls and boys. Mark Latham is the leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament. He joins us from home and he tweeted about it today. Um, Sorry, patriarchy has something to do with the pandemic? Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it, Well, it's a real shame to have lost Mark Latham there. But you get my drift. Everyone from the leader of the opposition to the UN is talking about patriarchy like it's a real thing, not just a feminist theory. But what even is patriarchy? And how does it work? I think of it like this. Patriarchy has, over the past 10,000 years or so, entrenched a dominator framework into our society. So instead of a culture of partnership, of power with, it's power over. And everything, from humans to animals to nature, is situated on a scale of power and control. So it's that old hierarchy. At the top, you've got men having power over women, white people have power over people of colour, heterosexuals power over people who are LGBTQI, rich have power over poor, adults have power over children, all people have power over nature, and so on. This dominator framework divides everything into a binary. What is considered masculine is privileged over what is considered feminine. In this way, it designates acceptable behaviour for men, for example, strong, independent, unemotional, logical and confident. And for women and non-binary people, it's expressive, nurturant, weak and dependent. This dominator framework is not the only way to organise a society, and it's definitely not sustainable. It lies at the core of our political culture in Australia. And the problem is, because we've been in it for so long, we mistake it for what is natural. That means we often don't see the influence it's having on us, on our beliefs, our hopes, our decisions, fears, what we're attracted to, and so on. Now, until recently, many of the worst injustices stemming from patriarchy 
like the violence of men, the oppression of LGBTQI people, the domestic servitude of women, racism. That's all being considered unfortunate, but unavoidable. So, you know, as was once the case with slavery, patriarchy positions these social ills as normal, the natural way of things. Dominant orders see no need to look at themselves. They simply push the spotlight away from themselves and onto others. So how do we sum all of this up? I think the American feminist and writer Bell Hooks does it best. As she names it, we are living under white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. I began to use the phrase in my work, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, because I wanted to have some language that would actually remind us continually of the, the interlocking systems of domination that define our reality and not to just have one thing be like, you know, gender is the important issue, race is the important issue. This is Bell Hooks defining her work back in 1995. But for me, the use of that, that particular jargonistic phrase was a way, a sort of shortcut way of saying all of these things actually are functioning simultaneously at all times in our lives. And I don't know why those terms have become so mocked by people, because in fact, far from simplifying the issues, I think they actually, when you merge them together, really complicate the questions of freedom and justice globally. Since then, she's added imperialist to white supremacist capitalist patriarchy to describe what she sees as the four interlocking systems of power that characterise this dominator culture. Now, dominator cultures socialise their citizens to believe that domination is the foundation of all human relationships. People who resist this notion and try to live outside of it are resisting the status quo, a status quo that is modelled by our own leaders day after day. So, knowing all this, is it really any wonder that family violence, and particularly coercive control, is still so widespread? That we see this insidious expression of the right to dominate, expressed by men over women, women over women, men over men, and both over children? We don't need a handbook to learn the tactics of coercive control. We've been practising them for 10,000 years. The tactics, the manipulation to maintain power and exercise coercive control in our intimate partner relationships, those all extend out to patriarchal society more widely. The bullying, intimidation, manipulation and domineering behaviours, they're all patriarchal trademarks, political players are conditioned over generations to maintain their power and dominance, exercise what they see as their entitlement, set the terms for others to obey and crush their opposition, whatever it takes. Poison privilege, grandiosity, superiority being above it. It is the central delusion of masculinity. You are not in nature, you are above nature, you dominate it. This is a delusion that has the potential to kill us all if we don't wake up. This is family therapist Terry Reel, who we heard from in episode three. 
Uh, we are not above nature. We are in nature. That's what my new book's about. We're in the system. We're not above the system. We don't work on it. We move inside of it. And if we don't adopt the wisdom and humility of understanding that, whether the nature you think you're controlling is your woman or your child or the traffic or the planet, if we don't wake up, the consequences are really lethal. Okay, I'm reading from these different pages and trying to be short so we can talk. But I like this sentence. I say, patriarchy promotes insanity. Here's Professor Bell Hooks again, this time speaking in front of a packed hall of young women and men at the University of Washington in 2005. She's clear the people who are most empowered by patriarchy are also victimised by it. It is at the root of the psychological ills troubling men in our nation. Patriarchy as a system has denied males access to full emotional well-being, which is not the same as feeling rewarded, successful, or powerful because of one's capacity to assert control over others. To truly address male pain and male crisis, we must, as a nation, be willing to expose the harsh reality that patriarchy has damaged men in the past and continues to damage them in the present. The crisis facing men is not the crisis of masculinity. It is the crisis of patriarchal masculinity. Until we make this distinction clear, men will continue to fear that any critique of patriarchy represents a threat. 16 years later, we're still having the same conversations. We're still struggling to get men to see that undoing these systems of domination won't just take their power away, it will allow them to be whole. It's time for men and women to, just like you and I are tonight, unite truly with the wisdom, the understanding that the system of patriarchy does damage to both sexes and incalculable damage to the relationships between them. Here's the thing. Patriarchy may position all men as having power over women, but it does not make all individual men powerful. In fact, men themselves are keenly aware that some men have power over them. The most powerful men under patriarchy are those who embody patriarchal traits of maleness. Control, logic, strength, competitiveness, autonomy, heterosexuality and whiteness. It's a pecking order from there down. So as the masculinities expert Michael Kimmel once told me, the essence of patriarchal masculinity is not that individual men feel powerful, it's that they feel entitled to power. But to get that power, they have to play the game of patriarchy, a game that may have some benefits, but inevitably ends up costing them, ends up costing all of us. So this is not a good system for anybody. I want everybody to bust out of patriarchy. And you know what? For men to be more pleasing to their women, to give more emotional intimacy to women, by definition, they must leave patriarchy. They must deconstruct that code and move beyond it. 
all men are to varying degrees controlling. It's hard to imagine that you could grow up in a patriarchal society and not internalise a sense of entitlement and privilege. So all men, to some extent, occupy positions of power and privilege and engage in controlling behaviours. But even the men that have really examine themselves, examine their own complicity and, and try to untangle themselves from that. We are still part of this wider patriarchal culture. This is Bob Pease, who's now a professor at Deakin University and author of the recent book Facing Patriarchy. Bob first started organising against patriarchy as a pro-feminist man back in 1970s Tasmania. Politically and theoretically, I thought feminism made a lot of sense. I supported gender equality. But when I realised I'd actually had to change myself, and that was much more unsettling. When you envisioned Tasmania in the 1970s, you might see a lot of sheep and not much else. But it was actually a heady time on this little island. The flooding of Lake Pedder had led to the founding of the Australian Greens, Tasmanian Aboriginals, the Palawa people, who were wrongly believed extinct, were organising politically, and the Hobart Women's Action Group was skewering the patriarchy in its hard-hitting and hilarious newsletter, Liberaction. Australia's dominated culture was being stripped bare and exposed, and the energy around it was electric. What happened in the 70s with the second wave was that women came together in consciousness raising groups to to talk about their experiences of patriarchy and of men and women were angered and empowered by that. And living with a woman who was in one of those groups, she would come home from meetings, you know, angry and challenging and confronting me as a man. And and I had social justice politics. I'd been involved in various kinds of social justice issues. I was a, studying social work at the time at the University of Tasmania. And I felt I felt really unsettled by it. Bob decided to get together with other male partners of feminist women to talk about the issues their wives and girlfriends were so angry about and figure out, what does all of this mean for us? What should we be doing? And how can we support women? So we set up a male consciousness raising group. We called it an anti-sexist men's group. And, and we tried to mirror what we thought the women were doing. You know, we choose a topic like... We talk about fathering or violence or sexuality or work and and we would talk out of our personal experience about that. The difference, of course, was that women were, in their groups, were talking about the experience of oppression. We really had were talking about a sense of entitlement and privilege. And yet at the same time, we also felt there was pain in our lives as well. That tension between recognising their role as being privileged and yet seeing how patriarchy was harming them too created fault lines in the group that really mirror the divisions we see among men today. Some men wanting to say, hey, life's not so great for us either. We've got pain and and issues and struggles and we need to be able to give voice to that. And other men were saying, hold on, but we're privileged and powerful in relation to women and we need to hear what women are saying about men's privilege. And intuitively at the time, I I just felt, well, power and pain are two sides of the same coin. It shouldn't be an either or. And we should be able to talk about them both. But this was a tension and the group split, basically. 
some men went off and talked about men's pain. Another group of men said, no, let's not look at that. That's too bourgeois and self-indulgent. We need to organise politically against patriarchy and not naval gaze. And, and I was part of a small group of men who thought, no, let's not separate them out. But what do we do as an alternative? So we did something that was seen as unusual. We started reading books on feminist theory. So we started reading feminist books written by women for women, but we then related them to our own lives. And, and so that was the beginning. Bob knew that to make lasting change, they needed to do more than just sit around drinking wine and talking in their living rooms. Like the women in their lives, they needed to take this to the streets. So Bob started organising forums and publishing a Men Against Sexism newsletter, Later in the 1980s, he would form a group in Melbourne called Men Against Sexual Assault and organise rallies against sexual violence. As you can imagine, men like Bob inspired a range of responses from feminist women. Women weren't quite sure in those days what to make of us. You know, some women thought, well, it's great and isn't it how wonderful a group of men are getting together to critically examine their masculinity and their power and privilege. What a wonderful thing and we should be supported. And other women thought, gee, I wonder what these guys are really up to. You know, what are their motivations? What are they really on about? And other women were absolutely hostile towards us, absolutely distrustful of it and, under, you know, had reasons to, well-founded reasons to be so perhaps as well. How did the men that you were speaking with and organising with feel about this in terms of their status and how they fit in society as anti-sexist men? Look, it's it's always been tricky. <laughs> Once we started to to become more conscious and more aware of how pervasive patriarchy was. And in the 70s, we talked very openly about patriarchy, much more so than men and women even do, do today. We talked about patriarchy then. And we, we began to see that we were part of it. We were complicit in it. And we were trying to work out, well, how do we understand our place in it? How do we untangle ourselves from it? How do we... How much responsibility do we do we take for the experience of oppression that the women in our own lives felt? Just as patriarchy was becoming more visible, so was another cultural force, backlash. There were men's rights groups starting to emerge. And, and the, we started to see the beginnings of the backlash. And that backlash came against us as well as the women. I was at times called a traitor to my gender. So it was something I was proud of, being a, a traitor to a particular kind of patriarchal masculinity and manhood and, and saw that as something we should be traitors. You know, we should be gender traitors. That was something I embraced. It's often said that gender inequality is at the root of domestic violence. But when we look at abuse in LGBTQI relationships, there is no clear correlation between gender and which partner is in the power over position. The perpetrator can be male, female or non-binary. So LGBTQI relationships don't reflect that traditional dynamic of male power over women. Patriarchy is the root of all evil. If patriarchy didn't exist, then none of us would be dealing with this sort of stuff. 
This is Russ Vickery, who we met in episode four. Russ was coercively controlled by his male partner for years. He's now the LGBTQI representative on VSAC, the Victorian Victim Survivors Advisory Council, on which victim survivors of family violence work on policy reforms and advise the state government. From my experience and my discussions with, you know, especially the ladies on uh, VSAC, the situation with me actually wasn't that different to the situations that they were experiencing. Uh, That's been a little bit of a light bulb moment for all of us. I wanted to interview Russ after I heard him speak about how the trappings of rigid gender norms and homophobia, all symptomatic of patriarchy, had threaded through his life and influenced him becoming a victim survivor of domestic abuse. By the time I'd completed primary school, I'd learnt what seemed like very important lessons about being a man. Don't be too weak. Don't be too feminine. And don't be too gay. Of course, this was also at a time where Australia was still blatantly and violently homophobic and it was in fact illegal to be gay. When I was a teenager, my high school years are full of memories of being dealt with as less than. I was singled out for being too gentle and more interested in drama club than football, so therefore automatically classified as a queer. In his spellbinding lecture, Russ says that after being kidnapped from the front of a gay club and viciously beaten by a gang of men, and after the AIDS crisis began to rip through his communities to a chorus of public opinion that this was just what gay people deserved, he decided to conform. He met a woman, found a love for her, married and had kids. Once I was married, the world saw me as heterosexual and I felt the safest and most accepted I'd felt in my entire life at that point. Seen as a straight man, I felt I could go anywhere and do pretty much anything and I was safe and accepted. My life conformed and fit into the box the world had always been pushing me towards. Inevitably, though, Russ's marriage broke down and in his 40s he had to admit to himself what he'd been denying his whole life, that he was gay. He hoped his first gay relationship would be his happily ever after, but it wasn't. This is when the abuser stepped into my life. My abuser and I were both raised in a homophobic world where violence against gay men was normalised. My abuser made a choice to control and abuse me. But without homophobia, perhaps he would have been less enabled to do so. Without homophobia, perhaps he wouldn't have had so many tools on hand to hurt me and to control me. All he needed to do was echo back on the messages I had already been programmed to receive and I would believe him. When the physical violence started, he told me that since I'd never been in a gay relationship, I wouldn't know. Two men are in a relationship and arguments turn physical. Boys will be boys. 
And no matter how much he broke my bones or my spirit, big boys don't cry. Years on, Russ is in a healthy, loving relationship and he's a staunch advocate for all victims of family violence, particularly those in LGBTQI relationships. And from his vantage point, there's more to ending domestic abuse and family violence than reducing gender inequality. Gender equality is not the solution on its own. No way. It's the patriarchal drivers that are the other cause of this. It's the acceptance of people in our society that still allow that patriarchy to happen. As soon as we stop accepting it, then a a number of those other things that are subsets of patriarchy will also disappear. So gender equality is, again, absolutely vital. But, you know, are we trying to resolve the symptom or the cause? It's helpful at this point for us to put the focus back on male behaviour because although men too are victims of patriarchy, they are also largely responsible for upholding it. I thought some research done a few years ago where men were asked to comment on whether they would challenge their best male friend if they knew that he was being physically violent to his intimate partner. And the vast majority of men said no, they wouldn't. Here's Professor Bob Pease again. So this is a man who's not physically violent, sees himself as non-violent. His best male friend, his mate, he discovers as being violent and abusive, and he won't challenge him. And and when he'll throw men the ask, why? Well, I wouldn't know how to do it. I would feel I was betraying our, our, the mateship and the, the bond that I have with him. And so... Ordinary and good men, and I'm putting inverted commas around good, become complicit in that culture. The sense of loyalty that men have to other men is is one of the issues that inhibits any significant shift and change. Here, Bob is alluding to one of the central tenets of Australian identity, mateship. A mate has always got your back. You support your mate no matter what. Mateship is deeply embedded in our national character. Bob traces its roots back to the early days of colonisation, with European colonisers in the bush, living in harsh conditions, often without women. The central elements of mateship, then and now, are that mates are men. They are tough and emotionally reserved. They rip into each other with jokes and put-downs. They crow about their sexual conquests, and they talk shit about women without fear of being told off. The rules are clear. No obvious caring and little to no touching. In other words, nothing gay. If you stick to the code of mateship, a mate will always support you, no matter what. Loyalty to your mate is a far higher virtue than observance of any law. I think all patriarchal societies have forms of male bonding, but there's something about the Australian form of mateship that that exalts it to a, to a higher degree. And mateship is exclusive of women. It's also ex- exclusive of of gay men and usually exclusive of non-white men as well. So we're talking of generally about white straight men, you know, who form that kind of bond of mateship. 
and it reproduces misogyny, it reproduces homophobia, it thinks it's at the heart of a lot of racism as well. This real dark side to mateship, you know, and, and I don't think we've sufficiently recognised that the dark side of mateship. There is research that shows that there is a relationship between patriarchal and sexist male peer cultures that are formed through mateship and the levels of men's violence against women. That's a big part of our national identity to unpick or to challenge. It's, I mean, even you saying it feels taboo. Well, it is. And yet I think that we, we, you know, we have to name it and we have to acknowledge that there is this dark side of mateship. And until we do, I don't think we're going to make any significant progress in terms of preventing men's violence against women. I think that particular element of mateship that Bob Pease talks about, where those people who are othered and those people who are not worthy of the same respect as your mates, they are then the capital to be used in bonding. And so if you can prove that you will hold them in contempt and you will do that in a way that, especially if it's humorous, you can all share this kind of dirty secret that you're not, you're not supposed to talk like this, but in this protected space you can. It really reinforces these bonds of mateship and power. Yes, but in this spirit of hope, there were also men in those uniforms, in the SES, who were quietly disturbed affronted and disturbed and unnerved by that behaviour and have gone on to be prepared to give witness. Mary's talking here about a small number of SAS soldiers who blew the whistle on alleged war crimes and misconduct in Afghanistan. It's very hopeful to see that those kinds of behaviours, those sort of untrammeled masculine dominant behaviours are in fact being noticed and called out by other men and resisted. So in this culture of mateship, of power over and of pressure to conform, how can we raise tender, strong, loving boys when we know that they're walking out our front door into a culture that will try to shame them into conforming? After particularly 50 years of feminism, a tomboy is not such a stigmatized creature anymore. But a quote-unquote girly boy is the object of pretty violent treatment. Still, Mm -hmm. the biggest enforcers of this code are other boys and girls and women. Everybody participates in patriarchy. I talk to parents about raising gender literate boys. This notion that you have to toughen up this kid is half of it. The other half is you have to soften up this kid and make them less selfish and more giving and teach them how to speak their minds in ways that cherish the person they're speaking to. You have to arm them with some wisdom and skills. We don't do that. We don't live in a relationship-cherishing culture that teaches our sons and daughters how to really handle themselves. They're on their own. How do you raise gender-literate kids? Terry uses one example when he was in the Caribbean on holiday with his two sons. They met a local braiding hair with little plastic beads. My seven-year-old son 
Justin, the older one, has like a couple three like Keith Richards cool rocker kind of thing. And my younger son, Alexander, does his entire head in corn rolls and in his favorite uh, color pink and gold okay now it's time to go back to school vacations over they have these things in their hair we have a little discussion you have a decision to make if you take those things out of your hair you could be missing out on really having some fun with it if you don't take them out of your hair then you may get grief for having them in your hair what do you guys want to do? And they both said, oh, no, no, we'll keep it. And then on the way to school, when Justin, the older one, put his foot in the car, he said, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And we wanted them having to cut the damn thing. And Alexander was the toast of the town with his, with his glorious uh, head. But it wasn't my decision. You see, it was theirs. Mm. I want us to arm our boys to be gender literate, to make uh, literate decisions about what they're going to pay and what the cost-benefit analysis is going to be for them. That's such a good distinction because a lot of people talk about raising their boys, particularly as gender neutral, and they'll sort of encourage them to just be who they are, you know, but perhaps not really articulating to their boys what the possible cost is. And at that point, you're not a trustworthy person if you encourage your young boy to do something that then ends up get, copying them grief without warning them that that's a possibility. Yeah, you have to arm them both ways. You mm. have to ride uh, both currents because we're in the world that we're in. We're not in an ideal world. Having mm. said that, uh, parents can also do what I call building a, a relationship-cherishing subculture around you and your kids and the family. Mm. You know, go to your schools and chair a committee on bullying and not non-bullying. Fill your, your family, your friends with people who support sensitivities in the boy as well as strength and strength in the girl as well as sensitivities. Whole people is what we're what we're after and protect them put them in a, in a little bubble as best you can because the culture at large is harsh the, the power relations in this country have been so founded on masculinist assumptions of majority and minority of who's in control of who's entitled and it's not just women who are behind the eight ball in that schema Ask yourself, why did the Uluru Statement from the heart fall almost on deaf ears in our political world in 2019, 2020, 2021? I mean, it's almost as though it was never issued as a call. So why is there no empathic response from our dominant male culture. It's because fundamentally, it's from indigenous people who have borne more disrespect in this culture than the disrespect that's been handed out to women as a rule. Hmm. It's a double whammy for indigenous folk. That's why the statement from the Uluru statement from the heart has just not had traction. There's a, a big part of what Aboriginal culture presents as an alternative, as a clearly sustainable alternative way of living, which you know really exemplifies the whole idea of power with rather than power over. And it is a direct challenge 
to the system we live in now. We talk about, you know, things like the big confrontation between capitalism and communism. Essentially, those are two systems that were still united under patriarchy, you know, and they still operated under that basic auspice of power over society. Aboriginal societies actually are a direct challenge to the modern form of industrialist capitalism that we have now and patriarchy. They actually do show a different way of developing and sustaining community and family and intimacy. I think we don't know enough of our history in terms of uh, not just, for example, of the dispossession of Indigenous folk in our country, but we don't know enough about the emergence of a patriarchal world post-colonisation and that kind of world uh, that has in part remained largely unchanged actually a couple of centuries later. Colonisation was an entirely different system of law, culture and society that was hell-bent on eradicating anything counter to it. And we stood in its way. And so colonisation deployed the mechanisms of violence to erase us. This is June Oscar Ao, a proud Bunabar woman from the remote town of Fitzroy Crossing in Western Australia and Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner. She's speaking to me from way out in the Kimberley in Western Australia, where she's been staying since the pandemic began in March last year. In 2017, June began touring the country, meeting and listening to thousands of Aboriginal women and girls in 50 rural, remote and urban locations to capture their lived experiences, where they'd come from, their expertise, and what were their challenges, strengths and hopes for a landmark report she tabled to Parliament last year called Weir Yani Uthangani. These women and girls spoke about their culture, what it was, the colonisers' attempts to destroy it, and what it would take to revive it. From my experience, there's a whole sophisticated framework, every fabric of, of life, and provides a you know entirely different system of law, culture, and society, and ensured there was the balance in the world we we lived in and that people went about being the best that they could be within uh, that environment, which was supported by the frameworks of customary law. Mm. And so we are here now in this modern reality where there's so much that impacts uh, the way in which people maintain healthy vibrant societies and healthy families and safe and protected families, the real issue of intergenerational trauma and poverty impacted by patriarchal attitudes and the laws and the imposition of patriarchal structures from colonisation onwards, which are major factors in the crisis of violence against our women and children. The process of coercive control is, essentially, 
the process of colonisation. The very same tactics and behaviours have been, and are still today, mirrored in the systemic abuses inflicted on First Nations people by the state. They too live under constant surveillance, micro-regulated by police and governmental agencies. They are degraded and disempowered by a system that sees itself as superior. They can be physically abused, denied medical treatment and humiliated by police who are supposed to protect them. They are promised help and assistance from governments that break their promises time and again. And they are made to believe that they are to blame for their own suffering. June Oscar says there is a feedback loop running from the beginning of colonisation through to today. The acts of violence that occurred were very gendered. Uh, men were mass incarcerated from, from the very beginning, leaving women and children very vulnerable to attack from colonisers. And there are so many accounts of this. Women were raped, children were taken away. Over time, those practices became entrenched in policies of the stolen generation and incarceration continued. So we, we are struggling with exactly the same issues today. Mass removal of our children and mass incarceration of our people. Violent acts that are also massively tied to the interpersonal violence in our lives. It is a cycle of structural and interpersonal violence that began at colonisation. And we have to break that. And so today we act as if the issues our women, children and men face are isolated or are the fault of individuals. And the current system should be able to resolve them as a Trawawai woman and cultural heritage officer Fiona Hamilton once put it to me, the problem with you white fellas is that you've got my people in a domestic violence relationship. Only we can't call the cops on you because you are the cops. Unless you address the overall power dynamic with the state, you'll never get it right. When we see equity, we'll see change. June Oscar knows this is an uphill battle, but she can feel this shift happening. Where Western thought and ways of doing things is seen as the best and nothing can compare. When the truth is that the issues we face are caused by this current system and it won't be able to resolve them, but they can be resolved. And they can be resolved through alternative ways of working and through Indigenous thinking and the lived experiences of Indigenous people. It takes a huge mind shift to change this. But I feel, you know, I feel like it is happening. Mm. The globe is thinking differently. COVID certainly has been a game changer. And, you know, the Black Lives Movement and gender justice and climate justice movement. So, you know, government has to catch up to this. And the gap is how we translate this mind shift to how we build structure and form policy. And to address this, solutions need to be strength-based. They need to be grounded in our self-determination and our cultures and our knowledge, focusing on a whole raft of areas from 
healing, leadership, and self-determination to economic empowerment and justice, to safe housing, maternal support and care and protection of the environment. You know, all our world is so interconnected. And that is part of the, the cultural and customary law framework that has sustained our society from time immemorial. It was like treated like a gulag, Australia, the big continent of Australia, as a place for the unwanted, basically. So 200 years later, what can be made of this situation? This is Dr Mary Graham, a Kumbamere woman and associate professor at the University of Queensland's School of Political Science and International Studies. She is an expert on Indigenous and non-Indigenous forms of knowledge, Aboriginal history and politics. As Dr Graham has written, there never was and there never will be a paradise. Western people are habituated, she says, to the idea of travelling towards some great unknown, where they hope they will finally find what they've been waiting for, happiness, love, security, a theory explaining everything. Or a world, let's say, in which the patriarchy has been smashed. But just because we can't necessarily get to some feminist utopia doesn't mean we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. We are facing serious challenges as a species, and if we want to survive the next few hundred years, we need to make fundamental changes. Fortunately, in Australia, we are in the uniquely privileged position to learn from the world's oldest living cultures. Here's Dr Mary Graham delivering a briefing for the Royal Society of Victoria. From our point of view, it would be to establish for a long time and properly a relationship with land because that's the most important. Two relationships, one with land and one one between people. The one between people is contingent or depends on the one between land and people. As Dr Graham has written, for Aboriginal people, land is the great teacher. It not only teaches us how to relate to it, but to each other. It suggests a notion of caring for something outside ourselves, something that is in and out of nature and that will exist for all time. What Aboriginal people ended up with in their, in their long, long development, social and political development, is one of a custodial ethic of looking after land. And that becomes a core meaning of what kind of society you have then. It becomes the template. So the big one is the law of obligation. You're obliged to look after land because land invented us. It's the true inventor. So look after the country and and look after people. So country always becomes first. That's why we always fought for land rights, not civil rights. So after a while, you have embedded in you an ethical life. At the heart of this worldview is a guide to how to live it. Cooperate, don't compete. Share, don't hoard. Extend your relationships. Look after land and honour your sacred sites. What you would end up with then is a a sacralised ecological stewardship system. You're aiming for that kind of life for everybody, actually. This is a system that is founded on the notion of partnership, of power with, 
of balance. That is gender balance, so women run things equally, but in balance, I prefer the word of balance, with men. That's why you, you have things like men's law and women's law, men's business, women's business. It is actually a, not just a, a good idea um, and fairness to women or something like that. It's actually about governance. That's the way to run a society. So men and women in this balanced sort of way. In this worldview, Success is measured by whether country is flourishing and people thriving. The concept of domination, men over women, humans over nature, is antithetical. I think my most unique thing about it is that there's no such concept like invasion. They handled in a balanced way the whole problem of violence too, conflict and violence. You could have fighting like on the land but not over land. You couldn't fight over land. So in other words, you couldn't have invasion. It seems as if in languages there's no concept of the idea of invasion. Invade, conquest, subjugate, nothing like that. Land was to be looked after, not fought over. The idea is that what you would end up with, and what we did end up with actually, is the idea of land, uh, nourishment, health, a flourishing society. Security, it's very important, security, protocols, a whole lot of things like that, rituals, ceremonies and so on. But the most important thing is, a, is guarantees a kind of well-being assurance for future generations. They've got to come into a land or country or a society where it's not threatening and they learn in an easy way uh, the idea of an ethical society. You know, so don't think it's a kind of all aiming at a virtuous sort of society or anything like that. Essentially, it's efficient, it's rational, it's sustainable, all the good things. There's no notion of perfectibility in this. You are not trying to become very good and virtuous in order to get some reward later on. No, you're doing it to have an efficient country, actually, an efficient society, I should say. That's, that's really what it's about. As Dr Graham puts it, this ethic of care, of partnership, of power with instead of power over, is not just some forgotten way of being. And it's not something we just put in the too hard basket because everything is irrevocably screwed. We still have the law of obligation embedded in parts of our society. And one of the most recent, in Murray terms, Aboriginal terms, is the the National Health Service. If we were looking at examples of the law of obligation, we'd say, ah, tell me about this, this National Health Service. It's a brilliant idea. You know, it looks after everybody. There are no insiders and outsiders. It's free, above all, for all people. And it's very high quality health care for everyone. So that's a law of obligation from our point of view. So other things like building little um, little bridges, nature bridges or tunnels, to stop roadkill, <laughs> looking after all the fairy beasties and so on and so on. That's a law of obligation. Anything that looks after the great majority of people and, of course, all of land. But when you have a dominant order, a hegemonic force, one of the characteristics of that dominant order is that it has no need for introspection because it is the order, it is the way of doing things. So all of this, all of their campaigning and the naming 
and and the calling out of bad behaviours is something that the dominant order won't do on its own volition. There's a shifting and a sorting that's going on. And I think we should be hopeful, actually, about that, because it's the only way that you can sandblast the patriarchal institution and to get something better going in terms of our public discourse and our policy settings and our economic outcomes and our ability to to reconcile with First Nations peoples. The level of contest and contestation to change things is the only way that we're actually going to get the change in much the same way, back to the intimate partner relationship. We've seen the evidence that if you can have people in an intimate partner relationship where there is deep respect for one another, to be able to cohabit in a way that's peaceable, we know what it takes to do that hard work to get there. Similarly, that erosion of dominance and power over can happen in a world beyond intimate partner relationships. And that's where we need to retain hope that it's not background noise, it's not feverish, you know, useless politics that's going on. It's actually a level and a ramping up of the contestation and the challenge that's needed to bring about a much more productive set of power relationships in our wider worlds in our institutions. But is it possible to reform these these systems? Yeah, but you have to take a long arc and I do think it is possible to refashion rather than a complete new build, to refashion. The cultural reckoning is on us, I think, in some way very much sharpened by the bravery of women such as Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame. But I think the challenge now in that long arc of history is not to have things spring back. This is the moment now to maintain the rage and to actually go much, much further in effecting a challenge to the political, cultural dominance of men in our body politic. For many, this latest cultural reckoning with patriarchy is exciting and long overdue. But it can also be deeply destabilising because we're turning inside out the systems that we have long taken for granted and rightly or wrongly, that can make people feel unsafe. In practice, none of this is straightforward. I personally struggle with how patriarchy works in my own life in my own mind. And if we think we can just name it, get angry at it, smash it, we're kidding ourselves. We're in this for the long haul. For me, the most eerie paradox is that this kind of talk is so radical, but at the same time, it's also blindingly obvious. From the point of view of everything we hold dear, children, the natural world, connectedness, love, we have no choice but to challenge and try to undo or overturn this dangerously unsustainable system of patriarchy 
It's never-ending violence. In this episode, we've heard from people who have dedicated their whole lives to making this transition. Speaking to them, it seems like we're right on the cusp. And then I look at the culture in our own national parliament and wonder how I could have ever felt such optimism. Then again, it was only a few years ago that the term patriarchy was dismissed as an old radical feminist relic. Change can come at you fast. But big moments and big movements, like the one we're living through, have been seen throughout history. Whether they actually stick and create lasting change, or whether power simply resists them, depends on all of us. Patriarchy is not inevitable. It is not sustainable. The equation is simple. If we are to survive and thrive as a species, we must do whatever we can to undo it, in our systems and in ourselves. Visionary feminism is a wise and loving politics. It is rooted in the love of male and female being, refusing to privilege one over the other. The soul of feminist politics is the commitment to ending patriarchal domination of women and men, girls and boys. In this series, we set out to illustrate exactly what the trap looks like and all of its various parts. Next time, we're pulling all these threads back together to see what will it take to accelerate change. We're going to take some time to think deeply about what we'd like to highlight as a way forward. So we'll be back with episode nine in a month from now. Until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Trap, proudly brought to you by the Victorian Women's Trust and its harm prevention entity, the Dugdale Trust for Women and Girls. We'd like to thank all of our supporters and donors. Special thanks to Equity Trustees and the Phyllis Connor Trust, the Bokhara Foundation and a private donor. Our creative producer and editor is Georgina Savage. Co-producers are Ali Oliver-Perham, Maria Chakuti, Mary Crooks and Lucy Ballantyne. Special thanks to Leah McPherson and the team at the Victorian Women's Trust. The Trap was mixed by Rami Sher and Paria Tahezadeh. I'm your head writer, producer and host, Jess Hill. This podcast was produced in Sydney and Melbourne and we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would like to acknowledge the victim survivors and others who have generously shared their stories and expertise. If today's topics have raised any issues for you, help is available. Contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or if you are seeking specialist LGBTQI support, contact WITH RESPECT on 1800 542 847. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and resources, visit www.thetrap.com.au and follow The Trap Pod on Instagram. You can also find out more about the Victorian Women's Trust via their website, www.vwt.org.au, or follow them on social media, at Vic Women's Trust. Thank you for listening.